fanzines, compilation cassettes, and unknown rockers that became the sound of grunge in the late 80s. And the writer that was there for it all, our guest Jillian Garr. This is the backstory of the writing of her book about the grunge pioneer record label, Sub Pop Records. Jillian will be hosting a book signing December 7th at Easy Street Records in West Seattle from 7 to 9 p.m. Her latest book, World Domination, the Sub Pop Records story, is available now. Check out the links on the Better Each Day show notes for more information on World Domination, the Sub Pop Records story. And here's Jillian Garr. It's my 17th. 17th book. And yes. you, you, what did you start out with? Was it She's a Rebel, The History of Women yep. in Rock and Roll? Yeah, that's the first one. That came out in 92. You've also written for Mojo, Rolling Stone, Goldmine, the Experience Music Project Museum, which I believe is now the Museum of Pop Culture. That's Yeah, that's right. R- right on all counts. <laughs> Good. I don't think I've written, I haven't done any writing for them as Mopop. I did, I wrote when they were Experience Music Project. So what got you into writing? Well, let's see, I guess I was always writing in a sense of just looking to communicate with other people what I thought was interesting. Because I remember as a child when... Um, Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet came out, the movie. I was really impressed by that. I was just a kid. I was in school. And I remember I drew this uh, comic book type series about it, because I don't know if you've seen it, but the costumes are very colorful and vibrant, and that really impressed me. So, so yeah, I drew this cartoon that sort of told the story of them wearing all those elaborate costumes. So I guess then it just, you know, kind of progressed from there. You write for the school paper, and then you do fanzines, because that was the time of the fanzines. And then there was a paper like The Rocket that was around in Seattle, and I ended up writing there. So as a result, I look at your book, World Domination, the Sub-Pop Record Story. You were, I have a feeling, kind of part of that whole scene. You were involved in it, because I know you love music, and how could you not be? So. Yeah, that's true. I mean, um, yeah, I was there to see all that happen firsthand. I mean, I, I guess I still am. I, you know, I live in Seattle and I see what happens at Sub Pop. But at that time, I was uh, working at the Rocket, um, which then was a uh, the Music Monthly. It later became Biweekly, and then it died. Um, but at that time, it was it was um, you know about the only. Well, I don't want to say the only place because there certainly were fanzines around at that time, but those were just, you know, cheaper Xerox publications that people would do until they lost interest, so there'd only be a couple issues, whereas when they started The Rocket, they were going to have a go at making it be a proper magazine, and we always call it a magazine, even though it was on newsprint, Um, but yeah, I mean, The Rocket offices, well, let's see, when I started, we were at Belltown at about, uh, it was on 2nd, between Bell and Battery, 
And in 88, when they officially started Sub Pop, they were in the um, the Terminal Sales Building, which was down at First in Virginia. So, you know, we were just minutes, minutes from that office. You could walk there in, in five minutes. Um, as, in fact, we did when we would review their records. You know, instead of them sending them to us, we would just go by, <laughs> just stop by the office and pick them up. And then later, the Rocket offices moved to Fitzland and Nora, which was even closer to the Terminal Sales Building, I think. So, yeah, we, we saw all that happening. I'm not sure I was aware of... Uh, Sub Pop's early era, as it was a fanzine itself, and and um, alternated with cassettes, compilation cassettes that Bruce Pavitt would put together. I don't know if I was aware of those, but um, as soon as uh, he started Sub Pop more seriously, well, first he put out the Sub Pop 100 compilation in '86, and I do remember that. But then in '88 they began pursuing things more formally and and putting out records by Green River and Soundgarden. And something I, I'm just thinking about now, talking to you, is the way they talked about these artists is that when they wrote about them in their catalog and or their press release or whatever, they made them sound like stars already, you know, and this would be maybe their first record, so <laughs> that wasn't the case, but, but they had quite a flair for hype and just uh, talked it up in that way, but always, always with tongue-in-cheek. Um, so you could laugh at it and feel like you were in on the joke. Um, yeah, they, they they were very canny in, in how they started marketing their product at a time when they really didn't have, you know, much of a name. So the guys you're talking about are Bruce Pavitt and John Poneman, I believe are the names. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, they are the co-founders of Sub Pop Records. Yeah, now, now Bruce had started Sub Pop when, um, when he was a student at Evergreen in Olympia. Um, he came out from Illinois to attend Evergreen, and as he as he said, get get a degree in punk rock, and uh, started working at the station down there, Chaos, and then started his fanzine, and um, he kept that going, and then he moved up to Seattle in search of you know more work after he got out of college, and uh, yeah, he felt there was uh, a scene there that could be written about. I mean, at the time, and when he came up to Seattle, this is 83, 84, and people don't even know where Seattle is. And that sounds like an exaggeration, but it's true. I mean, I've, I used to go to, um, I liked going to London uh, now and then because I was a great Anglophile. And you'd, <laughs> you'd tell people you were from Seattle and they didn't know where it was. <laughs> and, you know, this is one of the biggest cities on the West Coast, but that's how, um, that's how backwater it was. And then, actually, kind of, sort of funny side. Years later, in '99, I was in London, and I went on a Jack the Ripper tour. And I'm talking to the guide, and of course, she asked people where they're from, and I said Seattle, and she said, "Oh, Fraser country." Yeah, I've gotten that too. I've gotten that too, and I, I tell him, "Yeah, you know what it's like on that on that show." And the guy says, "Yeah, it's nothing like that." I <laughs> and I don't know of any condos that have that picture of the space needle that you see in the background. It's just not. Well, you know what I, you know what I was thinking at, at first. I thought, oh yeah, no, no place would have that view. But then, but then that just showed my my limited perspective because <laughs> uh, I don't know the name of the street, but it's this famous street on Queen Anne, which is a, a it, lovely it overlook. Queen Anne. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think, oh, that's where Fraser lived. He lived on Queen Anne, <laughs> which would make sense. That's where the money is. <laughs> yeah. 
No, the funnier one was Sleepless in Seattle with that houseboat yeah. that uh, Tom Hanks lived. Because, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I've known people that lived in houseboats, and they did not look like that. <laughs> but anyway, Bruce's thing was, was that, you know, there's interesting music happening where you are. You don't have to go to New York, L.A., or London, which were the big music centers. And he worked at this restaurant in Seattle as, you know, a dishwasher or something, alongside Duff McKagan. Duff said, well, I'm going to go to L.A. and and be a rock star. And Bruce said, well, why don't you stay here and be a rock star? And and Duff said, no, you can't can't become a rock star in Seattle. That's just not going to happen. So he went to L.A., and indeed, he ended up in Guns N' Roses. So, um, but now he's back here. <laughs> oh, really? What? Yeah, he um, he put out some, well, I guess it's really only the first one. That's a memoir. Um, I can't remember the name of the first one. But his memoir is pretty good. Um, you know, he talks about going down to L.A. and getting in Guns N' Roses, and then when that blew up, you know, all their drug and alcohol issues went out of control. And um, and for him too. I mean, he's you know he's quite frank about that. There's no secret about that. And yeah, he came up. He came back up to Seattle to try and get away from that kind of thing. And then he had some sort of terrible illness, like his pancreas was leaking or exploding or something. Oh, and no. it was bad. He could have died. Um, but he got through that and uh, just sort of dedicated himself to getting healthy again. You know, taking up mountain biking and and all that. He's a good guy. He's an intelligent guy. Um, he's more than just, you know, they, they just seem like rock and rollers, didn't they? But, but he likes to read. He put out another book called How to Be a Man that just uh, sort of like a guide for how the modern man can get through life. And he puts importance on things like being educated and being aware and reading. And he reads a lot of books and he's interested in history. And so anyone that reads books is, is going to... That's a great start. I'm always going to like someone who says they read a lot of books. Well, good. Then, but you, then anyway, you like so me. yeah. So Bruce's thing was find out what's in your own community and cultivate it. So he continued putting out the sub pop zine. He put out the first record by the Human, the Human, um, which were you know this great kind of they weren't really true punk rock. They were you know I guess I'd call them an alternative band here in Seattle. Funnily enough, he put that out under the name of Bomb Shelter Records, and I asked him why, and he said, well, he didn't think Sub Pop was a big enough name, which, and that was the only release he put out under the Bomb Shelter label, so that's kind of funny in itself. That was the name of a record store where he where he worked, um, well, that he helped found, actually, so that's where that name came from. Hmm. And um, I guess the next band after the U-Men would be Green River, and that's what uh, started pushing Sub Pop to be a more formal label. He put out, Bruce put out Sub Pop 186, but it didn't have a Northwest focus. It had what we'd now call an alternative rock focus, and it had Sonic Youth on it and something by um, uh, Skinny Puppy and a jokey thing from Steve Albini. And so, you know, it was broader. But um, Green River had put out a record on Homestead, which is on the East Coast, or was, and that record didn't do very well. So then Bruce decided, okay, I'm going to take over now. And uh, so he talked to Mark about putting on out the Green River record and, um, and Soundgarden as well. And John Poneman, who was uh, a DJ at KCMU, as Bruce was, um, he also had an interest in Soundgarden. 
And, you know, at first he felt kind of kind of threatened by Bruce because he wanted to put out Soundgarden. Um, but then Kim Sile brought the two of them together. He was talking to Kim saying, oh, are you going to have Bruce put out your record? And Kim said, you know, you guys should put it out together because you both have the same ideas. And it was, it, it was a good marriage because uh, John had the money and Bruce had the ideas. That's sort of a simple thing, because certainly John had ideas of his own. But it is true that Bruce didn't have much money. So this was at a time when it was a world of major record labels, and in order to get heard, he basically had to work with one of the big guys. I, I think uh, this was actually the first small independent label that I ever even heard of, because I'm kind of a Seattle guy, I guess. But... Um, it was basically starting out with nothing and making something out of it. And I always love those stories. I always love the underdog stories and stuff. But yeah. uh, they made quite a success out of it. Yeah, I, a lot of things have to have to happen. You do need that perseverance and just sort of a blind faith in what you're doing. But you also need luck. And you also need timing. And timing isn't really something, timing isn't anything you have control over. So, but all these things have to have to come together. Like you think about, you know, the case of Nirvana. What what if everything had happened a year earlier or a year later? Would they have become as big as they did? No, I don't think so. But you know, their their timing worked out well for them, or not, considering what happened to the band. But yeah. in any case, leading up to their success, it was timing. Because so you know they got rid of uh, Chad Channing, the drummer. Then they brought in Dave Grohl. And that's really when things began to change for them. And there was, you know, already an interest in alternative rock growing throughout the country. And, um, yeah, they just came along at a, at a perfect time. So Nirvana's first album, Bleach, I think was on the sub-pop label, correct? And I think they went on. That was. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, kind of, kind of the funny thing, which, um, you know, I've written about Nirvana. And people that know about Nirvana will know this, but if people aren't haven't read it they they might not be aware so um so they they were first they were signed by sub pop but uh at at john's insistence because john liked the demo that they'd recorded with jack and dino but bruce didn't think they were that great and especially when he saw them live um he didn't think their performances were very strong and that's why when for their first single love buzz uh bruce insisted well, Bruce insisted that it be the song Love Buzz, which is a cover uh, by Shocking Blue, the Dutch band. They're great if, if, you, they're, if you like that kind of um, late 60s rock. They have a vocalist who reminds me so much of Grace Slick. Hmm. Um, yeah, I discovered them through, through Nirvana. But, but Bruce insisted that it be Love Buzz because he didn't think their own material was strong enough. Um, you know, that's kind of funny. That's 88, and then, what, three years later, they have the top-selling album in the country. 
that's how fast things can change. But um, yeah, so they they released um, the Love Buzz single, and then at the end of '88, they went to the studio again with Jack and Dino to make Bleach. And yeah, that came out in in June '89. And did probably okay. Um, I don't know the numbers on that. But <clears throat> you know, I I should know them, <laughs> having written about them. Um, it, you know, it did a bit better than okay. It didn't, you know, it didn't do fabulously, but it did well. Um, Nirvana toured the U.S. a lot, so that helps build word of mouth. And it was it was a thing where you know they'd they'd play a town one year to a modest sized crowd, and then the next year when they came back, they had more people. So you know they did it the old fashioned way over a couple of years. So they generated interest that way, and um, I mean, what, what people, what what the youngsters uh, d- didn't have to live through is that it just took a lot longer. You know, radio was radio was pretty much the best you could hope for, whereas now with the internet, I mean, you could you could set up your own page and and just get the word out, and hope, theoretically, anyone in the world with an internet connection can find you. Um, but that wasn't the case that wasn't the case back then. So word spread slowly, but. Um, yeah, they you know they they built enough of a reputation that um, yeah the, yeah the album did did pretty well uh, did well by sub pop standards did well by independent record standards certainly they wanted to put out another album by them and uh, in 1990 they went to Smart Studios in Wisconsin to um, record that second album uh, which ended up not happening because they decided they'd rather get more money and go to a big label. But um, yes, yeah, Pop was still interested and still wanted to put out records by them. So they ended and in up, fact, beg beg them to not leave the label. <laughs> yeah, that that's crazy how that story worked out. So they went off and recorded Nevermind with DGC David Geffen. Yeah, which he started that label with kind of the same intention of finding people that nobody heard of and just going for it and nailed it. That I believe that album has sold thirty million copies. That's crazy town. You talk of uh, Green River. You know, a lot of those members went on to form Pearl Jam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. So um, Green River actually, they did a few tours. I, I almost hesitate to call them U.S. tours because 
they would only do you know a handful of shows but on their last uh, tour they went down the west coast and they ended up in Los Angeles and um, they were opening for Jane's Addiction and there was already something of a schism opening up within the band where um, where Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard wanted to pursue a more you know I guess you'd say conventional musical direction and uh, Mark Arm just wanted to do something more indie and punk related um, you know aesthetic differences and uh, Jeff really liked Jane's Addiction and Mark did not and so when they made it back to Seattle, uh, Jeff and that contingent said, no, you know, we're breaking up the band, um, which, which John and Bruce were greatly dismayed by because they were planning to quit their jobs and set up Sub Pop, and Green River was going to be one of their major acts, and now, you know, they're breaking up. But they still had a, an EP to deliver to them, which they did, so they had that, but there wasn't going to be any more. Um, but yeah, uh, Mark almost immediately... Uh, got in another band that turned out to be Mud Honey, which Bruce and John have always credited as being the flagship band because they stayed with Sub Pop. And Jeff and the other guys first formed Mother Love Bone. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say, you know, I want to say touch more glam oriented, but not, I don't want you to think Mark Bolin, but in, more in that direction, mainly because of their flamboyant front man, Andy Wood. And they did get a, a deal with Polygram, and they were going to release their first album with them, but then Andy died of drug-related causes. That was in 1990. Um, and that stuff has since come out. Actually, I think the album did come out anyway, Apple. Then went out of print. But the Mother Love Bone stuff has been reissued numerous times, so, so that's easy to find. And then from that, um, members of um, Mother Love Bone, including Jeff, went on to form Pearl Jam. Where did Eddie Vedder come into the picture? Well, he was a singer from San Diego. And uh, let's see, who's the guy? I think Jack Irons was the, uh, what do I want to say, the intermediary, the drummer, who has also played with Pearl Jam on occasion. Um, They were looking for a singer, because Jeff was rehearsing with Stone and and Mike and the other guys, but they needed someone to sing. And uh, Jack Irons uh, recommended that Eddie said, um, contact contact the band, which didn't have a name, you know, they weren't Pearl Jam yet. And um, so Eddie, he had some of their music and he wrote lyrics to these songs that, that he'd been sent on cassette and he mailed it back and they liked his voice and they got him up here and that was that. Stay, I'm still alive. 
it's amazing how these things evolve. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think those early years are really uh, the most interesting part of a story of how a, a band or an organization comes together and grows and then hits that tipping point. I think a lot of the really good music comes out of these bands when they're hungry, when they're starting out. And uh, Oh, yeah, well, you have the incentive then. Yeah, I have a quote here from uh, John Poneman uh, from an interview that I heard years ago. Um, and I, I looked it up on uh, YouTube, and there it was. Uh, but what he says is, the best rock and roll has been a reaction to oppression. And that's kind of, I think, what that uh, sub-pop started out as kind of a reaction to oppression uh, in that the odds were not with them at all to, to, to get anywhere with it. Yeah, and they were, um, and I think, you know, they each said this to me in sort of different ways. It was, uh, they didn't just want to, neither Bruce or John wanted to just go and get a conventional-type job and buckle under as, uh, in, in corporate culture, you know, just be another cog in the, in the wheel in the cog in the machinery. Mm -hmm. They wanted to do something more interesting and meaningful. It makes it much easier to go to work when you're doing that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I told you a little bit about my background. Man, I, I guess I'm glad I did it. It motivated me to do a lot of things, and I'm never going to retire. I'm just going to do what I love doing, and I'm not going to answer to uh, stockholders and corporate America and and all the kisses and promises they gave me that turned out to be they didn't really love me after all. <laughs> well, you well, you know, when you look at Sub Pop in the 80s, a lot of their um their whole I guess you'd say their their company culture was uh you know, sending up uh corporate culture. Like in the in the Sub Pop 200 compilation they put out, it was initially a box set of 3 EPs. Now it's on a single CD, but there was a a booklet inside that had pictures of the bands and as the co-founders it had pictures of Bruce and John and I don't know if you've seen this but they're wearing identical suits and one is called let's see I think he's the uh, executive director of supervisory management and the other one is the supervisory director of executive management <laughs> that sounds like the uh, backup manager to the manager or something yeah <laughs> Or, you know, the, the whole loser, the, the idea of the loser T-shirt. You know, they just had the white T-shirt that said loser across it in big, bold letters. And this was the 80s, the acquisitive 80s, and Wall Street, and Gordon Gecko and all that. And mm. You weren't supposed to want to be a loser. So, of course, they made a shirt that said loser. <laughs> and, ironically, made good money doing so. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if you can ever figure out that formula, I don't know. So what has become of uh, Sub Pop? What are they currently doing? Do they exist? Well, they, they do exist, and uh, they're still in downtown Seattle, and they're run in a much more responsible way than they used to be, meaning employee paychecks don't bounce, <laughs> which I'm sure the staff is all very grateful for. That's a nice thing, yeah. Um, in the late 90s, Bruce and John had a big falling out over the direction of the label. By that time, Sub Pop had been sold to Warner Brothers, but it was a, a clever deal that let, leaves Sub Pop with majority control. Hmm. Um, so it's even more amazing to think about it now that Warner Brothers would put up all this money to buy the company and yet 
have a minority interest in it. But that's the deal. So Sub Pop's still been able to run things themselves. And things had reached kind of a crisis point. Getting that influx of money in a way kind of hurt the label. And they just began overspending and investing in bands that didn't return their investment. And and Bruce wanted to go back and do something maybe more indie-minded, and John did not. So they had a big split. And Bruce left the company. And um, they, they were at odds for a while. But then... Uh, Working hard, Jonathan sort of rebuilt things. They did kind. Of, they did start going back into a more rock direction. Uh, the Murder City Devils. They credit with having turned them around. That was the late '90s. Bruce, I believe, eventually sold all his shares. I mean, he quit the company, but I think he still had some shares. Um, he eventually sold his shares, but now he's uh, he's. How did he describe it? He's he's uh, t- been taken on as a consultant. Yeah. So he's not really involved in the day-to-day stuff, but he's there when they need him. And he said, yeah, they bring me out when there are anniversaries, or, and I get to go to the holiday party, which is great. So, well, that's cool. Um, yeah. Um, but, yeah, Sub Pop went on to enjoy success. They put out, what, records by Fleet Foxes and Head in the Heart. And what have they been doing lately? Um, I think Jay Massis has his new record is on Sub Pop. And they're always doing reissues. Maybe you heard they're just doing, they're going to reissue Green River stuff, which um, both EPs uh, being reissued with a lot of new material. Um, I know Jackie Dino's been working on that for a while. He mentioned it to me, and I could not say publicly, but it's been announced. So they are always looking for uh, new, new acts. They're always dealing with new contemporary stuff, but they've got this rich catalog that they've been... Um, digging into as well. I mean, the U-Men, they put out a great set by the U-Men in, I don't know if it was last year or the year before, but that was great. And the U-Men weren't even on their label, but it was issued through them. So they're, so they're definitely still there. In fact, they even have a subsidiary label of their own called Hardly Art, which they set up to do kind of small, quicker deals. Um, so where, you know, they won't give an act as much money, but they'll get a record out much quicker. And they experiment with all kinds of different ways to put deals together. One of the executives there was telling me um, so that you know the artist will actually can actually end up making money from from record sales. Oh, wow! Because of the way because the way they <laughs> they set up the deal, you know, so they're not just indebted to the record company. Um, of course, it's smaller scale, but you know it works. So yeah, they're definitely out there. I don't. Did you go to their thirtieth? birthday party last year no i did not i took over west seattle it was a bit too crowded for my taste actually but <laughs> but it but it did really well they had bands and food and beer gardens and because they did it in the neighborhood you know it was it was a, a real family event you saw people with their kids and but i want to say to people listening to this bo- podcast don't bring your dogs to festivals <laughs> this has got to stop I know people do it because they want to have fun with their dogs, but seeing dogs in the in this situation in particular, you know, it was crowded, and it's just not a pleasant environment for the dogs. I don't think. Okay. They're they're jammed amongst these crowds. There's the loud music, which they don't know what that is, and um, you know, it was pretty hot this last summer, and so think how tired you'd get having to walk on your bare feet on pavement all the time. Well, so leave your dogs at home, people. That's my. <laughs> I appreciate my that. Jillian will be hosting a book signing December seventh at Easy Street Records in West Seattle from seven to nine p.m. 
Her latest book, World Domination, The Sub-Pop Record Story, is available now. Check out the links on the Better Each Day show notes for more information on World Domination, The Sub-Pop Record Story. day a bit better.